would. So take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians uh, chapter 4. Typically, whenever I begin a new series uh, on a book of the Bible, I usually go through and I explain the author and the audience and, and the message and all those things. And as I was thinking about that, as I was preparing for Ephesians, I thought, well, that's something you can get out of any good study Bible. Why do I have to give a, a whole sermon on that? So, so I trust that if you want to get all of that, you can uh, look at the, the articles in your study Bible. And if you want to get the background on uh, Paul, the details of Paul planting this church, you can go back and read Acts uh, 19. Uh, but what I would rather do today is to begin this epistle and sort of give you an overview of the book by starting in the middle in Ephesians uh, chapter 4. But before we do that, uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Oh God, by your Holy Spirit, you inspired your word. By that same Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes to understand the truth of your word. And by your Spirit, that you would apply that truth to our hearts and lives. That we might respond in trust and obedience and faith. These things we ask in Jesus' name, our Lord. Amen. So have you ever noticed how hard it is to really uh, lead a balanced life? Now, we, we try to have a good work-life balance. We talk about that, right? But we, we always seem to sort of hover between workaholism and uh, a kind of self-indulgent laziness. And we're always rustling to find that balance. Or maybe it's in our exercise and in our diet. You know, we begin the year, don't we? We watch what we eat and uh, we go to the gym every day. And yet we then oftentimes begin to slowly see that fall off until maybe by the end of the year, we're not really exercising much and our willpower seems to be little to, to nothing. You know, we often find ourselves living life in these where we jump from one side of the road to the other. You know, we see the, the inconsistency and the imbalance in our lives going from one extreme to the other. You know, it's not unlike a, a pendulum on a clock that, that goes back and forth, but we always kind of uh, course correct, don't we? You know, so we're always, uh, it seems like uh, it's like a moving target. And if that is true in our life in general, how much more is that true of our lives, spiritually speaking? You know, Christianity can feel a lot like a, a roller coaster ride, up and down and sort of back and forth. You know, having a, a steady, mature, balanced, biblical Christian life just seems oftentimes to be so far from our experience. So, so how is it that we find that sweet spot? That, that biblical balance in, in our Christian life, in our families, in, in, in our church. And Ephesians really gives us a, a picture of that. You know, a lot of uh, Paul's letters that he writes to the churches are written specifically to address some kind of issue. You know, whether it's uh, Galatians, where he's writing about the Judaizers and, and their false teaching, whether it's uh, the Corinthians, which many of you have been reading through the book of Corinthians, you know, and talking about 
uh, the fighting and the bickering that's going on and people promoting themselves and, you know, questions about marriage or lawsuits or, or things like that. But, but the book of Ephesians is different than that. Paul doesn't so much address any specific heresy or issue in the church. Instead, he's just showing us what it means to be a Christian. And, and in the middle of that great epistle, Paul shows us sort of the two sides of what it means to live a balanced Christian life. So if you would, look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, I, I want you to see... Uh, two sides here. First of all, Paul uses that word therefore, which sort of points him back to the first three chapters that he's been laying out in this, these books. And what he's been talking about earlier on is the gospel of Jesus Christ, what that looks like. And so our first point that we need to see if we're to live a balanced Christian life is learning the gospel. You know, understanding exactly what it means to be saved and how it is that God accomplishes that. But then the second thing we see here in Ephesians 4 is that we are to walk in a manner worthy of that calling by which we have been called in the first three chapters. So if the first point is learning the gospel, then the second point is living in light of the gospel or understanding how our salvation informs and changes how we live our lives. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Uh, you could easily summarize these two points by stating it this way, that we are to live in light of who we are in Jesus Christ. We are to live in light of who we are in Jesus Christ. And, and let me suggest to you that these two points are not only important to keep that balance in our Christian life, but, but they must be taken in this order as well. Paul emphasizes this by using that conjunction, therefore, to show that we must engage in practical life and living, yes, but before we can do so, we must know and understand the doctrine that he lays out in chapters 1 through 3. Now, doctrine must always come first, and we must never reverse the order. Now, let me state this maybe a different way. We must not act until we are clear about our doctrine. We must not live until we are clear about our doctrine. Paul is saying that we must understand doctrine before we can apply it. Now, you might hear that and you go, well, duh. Right, kids? Even you guys get this, right? You're going, duh. Of course you've got to understand your doctrine before you can live that out. And that might sound rather simplistic, but it's really not. It's really not. In the, the day and age in which we live, many people are living by their sort of their gut feeling or they're driven more by their desires. They're not so much driven by what God's word says. So I want us to look at these two points uh, as sort of, like I said, an overview of this book. First of all, learning the gospel. Now, I am going to go back and share with you just a little bit about how the church was established so you understand what Paul is doing as he's writing here. In Acts 18, Paul has just sort of a brief uh, contact uh, with some of the Jews in the synagogue in Ephesus. But then in chapter 19, we begin to see that Paul actually had a more extended stay there for about uh, a period of time, he was sort of interacting with some of the followers of John the Baptist. And then, as was his tradition, he began to speak in the synagogue. And so he did that for about three months until he sort of 
ticked off some of the Jews and they didn't appreciate the message that, that he was preaching. And so he, he changed the, the forum by which he, he shared, but he continued to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he had daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannius for, for really like two years until uh, everyone heard the word of the Lord. And many believed and repudiated their former beliefs. I mean, there was a drastic conversion. As a matter of fact, many people in the book of Ephesus had books about magic and about witchcraft, and they had a big book burning to get rid of these to show that they were repenting and turning from these ways and turning to the Lord. And then in Acts 20, we read that Paul uh, met the Ephesian elders at Miletus, and he encouraged them to look after this church. Uh, he loved this church very much and he wanted them to watch out and he said, you know, as a matter of fact, I want you to watch out for them because there will be false teaching that will come up even from your own number, insinuating maybe even from the number of the elders. And so now here we are about 10 years later, Paul is in prison in Rome and he writes to the church at Ephesus, to this church he loves so much. And what does he talk about? He talks to them about the gospel about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, God's plan of salvation for us. But what I want us to understand is, is that God's plan of salvation for us is so much more than what we often talk about when it comes to the gospel. Don't we usually refer to the gospel in terms of the fact that Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins and that he rose again from the dead and to go and to prepare a place for me? And the gospel does include that. Don't throw stones yet. I'm not preaching a different gospel. I just want you to know that oftentimes when we think about what it means to be saved, that's where our definition of the gospel ends. That uh, the, the glorious reality of the gospel is really something that's weighted more for the future. I am to believe now, but really the payoff of my salvation isn't going to happen until way down the road. And so Jesus died for me so that I can go to heaven. So basically what happens is, we may not say this, but pragmatically speaking, what oftentimes happens is that the gospel for us becomes nothing more than fire insurance with a few benefits that we have while we spend this time here upon the earth. And so when our gospel is anemic like this, it stands to reason that our Christianity has a tendency to be weak. And our Savior will be insufficient for what we face here in this life. And so it's my prayer that as we go through this study on the book of Ephesians, that our understanding of the overwhelming grace of God will expand. As Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it, he said, If the epistle to the Romans is the purest expression of the gospel, the epistle to the Ephesians is the sublimest or the most glorious and most majestic expression of it. And that's what I hope that we will see. That as we look at this, we won't go, Oh, the gospel. Oh. But that our hearts will be stirred by what it is that, that Paul lays out in this. Because Paul's heart was stirred. Do you notice? If you've read through the book of Ephesians uh, recently, you, you notice that Paul will be just going on and he's describing what it is that God has done for his people. And all of a sudden he'll just stop and break out in worship, in praise, in thanksgiving to God 
for what it is that he has done uh, for us. Because Paul gets so caught up in, as he understands what the Lord has done. And so Paul begins this letter to, to the Ephesians with an exclamation of praise to God and, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessings. I want you to hear that. Every spiritual blessing. Not a lot of spiritual blessings. Not most spiritual blessings. But he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, as he says in verse 3. And then he begins to enumerate those. And if you're in chapter 1 now, you can look at verse 4 and see the first blessing is that he, uh, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then in verse 5, he immediately adds, In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. You see, these verses show that obviously it emphasizes God's sovereignty as the main reason for our salvation. And then the practical uh, result is found in verse 6. It is to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed us and the beloved. And then Paul turns to Christ, the work of the Son, in verse 7 and how we are redeemed through his blood. But he still can't get away from the truth that our salvation is rooted in God's will. In verse 9, as he speaks about how according to his kind intentions which he purposed in him. How God is working out his plan. But that's not enough. Paul keeps hammering on this theme in our text. Emphasizing that the reason we have an inheritance in Christ. In verse 11. Is that we have been predestined according to his purpose. Who works all things after the counsel of his will. So the emphasis I want us to see in Ephesians. Uh, is on God's will. Not on our own will. Again the bottom line practically in verse 12 is to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So the doctrine of God's sovereignty as the underlying cause of our salvation is all about praise and glory to God. Now I think oftentimes when we think of the gospel, we think of it only as a message that we either receive or we reject. And there's a sense in which that is true. But Paul wants us to see that the gospel is a divine message of God. It is a message telling us what it is that God is doing in the life of his people. Uh, Paul says uh, in verse 1, he describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He is a messenger of God by God's choosing and by God's doing. And we must listen to the message of this book with an appropriate attention and humility because this message doesn't come to us from the ideas of man. This is not you know, coming from an individual or even a good teacher or even a, an awesome missionary. The message comes to us from God who appointed Paul to bring this message to us. And therefore, when you hear Paul speaking in this letter, you are in fact hearing the message of God himself that he is giving to uh, the world. And I, and I want to say that this is really important today in the culture in which we live because one of the central errors in our thinking today is that men and women have the right to decide for themselves what Christianity is or what the church is and what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And the Apostle Paul is saying, no, 
The gospel is God's. It belongs to him. It is his message. No one can alter the gospel. And, and so he is here to declare that gospel. And it is our business to sit under that gospel message declaration and receive it and believe it and embrace it with all of our souls. And this gospel message includes more than just saving individuals. God does more than, than uh, show his grace to his people and forgive them from his sins. The good news is, is that even as God is saving individuals, he is drawing out a portion of, of fallen humanity, of those that are dead in their sins. And he's, he's setting aside these people, as, as Jacob shared this morning in Sunday school, uh, for a purpose. For a purpose to, to, uh, to do the task that God has called them to do. But also to create a multi-ethnic family known as the church. Where God is breaking down the dividing walls between Jew and Gentile. And so what I want you to walk away with. And I feel like my words aren't adequate to express this. That the gospel is not just some intellectual message that we hear that we have to decide, oh yeah, I believe that or I don't. The good news is, God is at work. God is on the prowl. God is actually saving people. He's not just giving us the option. He is actually at work. He is the evangelistic God who is at work to create a new humanity that where the, the curse of sin has been lifted through the blood of Jesus Christ. And these people will be here upon this earth to proclaim that gospel message. And that will one day gather in glory to stand before God for all eternity and to worship Him. Even Presbyterians ought to say amen to that. Right? That's the gospel. And it's important that we see these things to which we have been called the glorious possibilities that have been opened for us. And the more that we see, the more that we understand these things, the more we'll be ready and even anxious to work them out in our lives. But there are some people, even people in the church, who don't care so much for theology. And they're really not interested in doctrine so much. It's not that they hate all doctrine. They just don't have much of a desire to dig into the nuances of doctrine. They're more about experiences. They just want to know what they need to do. You know, how ought I to live in such a way as to receive the blessing of God might sort of be their, their cry. But such a notion, brothers and sisters, I would suggest to you is dangerous and can be a slippery slope to a works-type salvation. A mentality that lends itself to find significance and worth if we only live a certain way, if we only do certain things, you know, and keep certain commands, then it is that God loves me. And so we can find ourselves almost on a performance treadmill, just trying to keep up and to do the things that we are to do. But it's only when our life is grounded in what Christ has done for us that we find that true freedom. So if you have that sense of sort of a slight aversion to think, thinking deeply about doctrinal things, then I would encourage you as we go through this study of Ephesians that you would ask the Lord to open your eyes, that you would ask the Lord to uh, really help you to meditate and to think about the things that he shares. Now, it may feel a little bit like kids. I don't know about you guys, but I know when I was little, one of the things 
that my parents would ask me to do. Well, they didn't really ask me. It wasn't really a choice. But that was to eat my broccoli. And I was like, I just don't like to eat broccoli. I eat broccoli now. I'm, I'm good with that. But when I was young, that was hard. You know, but what I found is, is that, that it was beneficial and it did help me. And I think in some ways, maybe for all of us, I'm asking us to spiritually eat your broccoli. You know, uh, that may be for some of us what theology might feel like, but it really is a glorious and a wonderful thing. And ask that the Lord might work in our hearts because of that. But not only that we would... Uh, that we would learn and understand the gospel, but that we would live in light of the gospel, as we see in chapters 4 through 6. If there are some people who don't care so much for doctrine, then the opposite is true of other people. They love doctrine and theology. You know, they could just camp out in Ephesians 1 through 3 forever. As a matter of fact, forget about chapters 4 through 6. I'm good. You know, it's to them, it's like being Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, seeing the marvelous transformation of our Lord before his eyes. And then seeing Moses and Elijah alive. You know, I mean, you, you just can capture the moment uh, when you hear what Peter said to his Lord. He said, Lord, it's good that we're here. That's how some people feel about the other. It's good that we're here. You know, if you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And as if that's not enough of a high, then as soon as he says that, then we read in Matthew 17, he was still speaking when, behold, the bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. You know, that's sometimes the attitude that some people have towards theology. It's just this sense of overwhelming awe and, uh, and just loving that. But such people need to be reminded that even on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus and his disciples left that mountain eventually and went down into the valley to meet, deal with the Father and his poor son who was tormented by demons. And likewise, we must always return to life, Right? You know, it's great to, to, to bask in the theology, uh, and, and I know that there are some people who are naturally in, intellectual. Uh, they have been given minds by God that, that may even be above average, and they just, they love this. Perhaps they enjoy reading and studying and reasoning and handling great truths and doctrines, but their particular danger is to spend all their time with doctrine and to stop right there, and for that doctrine to go no further and so they come to the end of chapter 3, and they tend to say, okay, well, of course, the rest of the book talking about application, which is obvious, and I know about that. And, and then they don't really give themselves to read much further and to study more carefully. And as I said earlier, such people tend to read books about doctrine and theology, which is excellent and even desirable, but it may also be the snare of the devil, because they can spend so much time with doctrine and fail to put it into practice and end up living as hypocrites and denying and, and deny by their lifestyle the very doctrines they believe. You know what I'm talking about? You know people like this. You know people who, who they spend all their time reading God's word. They're very disciplined in doing that. But when it comes to loving other people, they don't do that so well. As a matter of fact, they may come across as very sort of know-it-all-ish. It may be very... Uh, 
um, very self-absorbed, and so they quarrel with others. Or maybe they neglect to share their faith with those who know nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so rather than fulfilling the great commission, which they've been called to do, you know, they spend all their time talking about the theology and actually denying that very theology of taking that gospel to the world in which they live. So whichever temptation that we might have, and brothers and sisters, I'll just tell you this. It has been my experience that everybody falls into one camp or the other. You know, that our, our leanings are either usually towards wanting uh, experience and application and all that, or it's towards theology. And, and I'm not trying to make a big deal about this, but I do want us to understand that. Because as we come to the book of Ephesians, we need to take the whole package. That's how Paul gave it, and he gave it to us uh, for a reason. And so uh, e- either side is uh, equally unbalanced. But if we're going to have a balanced Christian life, we must learn and understand the gospel, but we also must live in light of the gospel. Now, uh, notice that Paul commands the Ephesians to live a life worthy of the calling by which they have called. You know, he doesn't just tell them that they just need to look to the Lord and let him live his life through them. If he, if he did that, then he could have just given the benediction right there after uh, verse 1 of chapter 4 and saved us a whole lot of time rather than writing three more chapters. But he had specific things. He, he unpacked. He wanted us to see and to understand. Paul goes into detail explaining what this life looks like in the church. Uh, in chapter 4, we see that particularly as he talks about what he's, who he's given to the church and how the church is to function. He talks about the whole thing of putting off and putting, putting off the old man and putting on the new man. He talks about how we are to function in our homes as we get into chapter 5 and chapter 6, about the relationships between husbands and wives. And let me just say this, lest I lead you astray. It's not like the first part of the book is all theology and the last part of the book is, is, uh, is all about Christian living. He mixes it up more than that. You will notice that even in Ephesians 4, it's just shortly after he says live this way that he goes back to a theological treatise because those two things are so intertwined. And so uh, he tells us how we are to live in the home, but also in society in general as well. And then he even wraps up this letter by talking about the place of prayer and talking about spiritual warfare. And I oftentimes wonder if he did that because he thought that the Ephesians understood so clearly that spiritual realm. You know, that if they were into magic and witchcraft and such things, that they would understand the reality of, of uh, that spiritual struggle. But that's something that we experience as well. And so Paul reprimands the Ephesians. He commands them. He appeals to them. He argues to them. Because in the New Testament, that's what sanctification is. Sanctification is the outworking and the outliving by the power that God gives us and that's already in us of the doctrine that we have believed and experiences that we have enjoyed from his gracious hand. You know, Paul in Philippians talks about how we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We don't just let go and let God, but there is a sense in which we are to to understand these truths that God has laid out and grapple with how those are to work themselves out in our lives. Brothers and sisters, it is to the extent that we grasp the truth of the doctrine that the desire to be holy is created in us. 
So as we see that doctrine more fully, then there is even a greater desire to live that out before Christ. Brothers and sisters, if I really believe that, if you really believe that, you know, while I was dead in trespasses and sins, that God sent his son into the world to die for me and for my sins, that I might be saved from hell and might be saved to heaven, that I would be given a new purpose and task to be part of his church and a privilege to share that good news with others and that he quickened me to open my eyes to my sin and his marvelous grace. If I really believe that, then I think that I would be compelled to break out into song like the hymn writer who says, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If I believe that truth as I live my life in this world, I realize that I have no right to live my life to myself. It is because I believe the doctrine that I want to be holy and I want to be more satisfied. So we see the importance of that word therefore in Ephesians 4.1. The importance of not picking and choosing portions of scripture that go more towards our bent. Not just consulting our feelings about how we live, but being led by the word of God that we may ever live to the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen? Amen. Let's take just a moment and just silently bow our heads and, and, and meditate upon the word that is preached um, and just respond to the Lord silently in an appropriate way. Our Lord and our God, we ask that by your Holy Spirit that we would not love the things of this world, nor the world itself, but that you would uh, help us to set our hearts on heavenly things, on the grace of God and, and the peace of God, and upon God himself. Oh Lord, open our eyes. We pray as we, we return to this epistle, this letter to the Ephesians, next week that you would begin us on our journey uh, Lord that we might see the glorious things that you bring to us uh, by your hands we thank you God and we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ Amen